This episode of Happy, Sad, Confused is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images, and Google Apps, plus 15 new templates and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace with a free trial at squarespace.com and enter offer code HAPPY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. Let's start the show. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz, and welcome to my show, and welcome to my gravelly, strange, cold-written voice. Yeah, I'm a little under the weather, guys. But the good news is I'm on the upswing, and the good news is I have just completed a lovely, entertaining interview with someone I think you're going to be interested in by the name of Colin Firth. Yes, Mr. Colin Firth himself has just exited my office. We chatted a lot about an amazing new movie you guys need to check out. It comes out this Friday. It's called Kingsman, The Secret Service. It is awesome. It is super fun. It's basically a crazy kind of um, James Bondian adventure in which Colin kicks a ton of ass. Samuel L. Jackson's in it. Michael Caine's in it. Um, some really great young actors that you will know a lot more about in the years to come. Um, this is the most entertaining movie thus far this year. I mean, I know that's not saying much. It's we're early in the year, but trust me, this is a good one. I've seen it twice. I hereby endorse it. Check it out. Kingsman. Uh, and I endorse this interview. Colin Firth was uh, and is awesome. We talked about all sorts of stuff from his career. Uh, Kingsman, of course, his um, rumors of you know James Bond over the years, of course, his uh, time in the Bridget Jones movies, Pride and Prejudice, uh, Mamma Mia, his singing. <laughs> we hit upon all the uh, ups and downs of uh, mostly ups of a pretty remarkable career that continues to, um, you know, just uh, propel forward. Uh, the man won an Oscar just a few years ago for the King's speech. Uh, he's a two time nominee. We talk about his other nomination for, um, a single man a little bit, the movie by Tom Ford. Um, it was a great pleasure to talk to Mr. Colin Firth. I feel like I have to say Mr. Colin Firth cause not cause he's a little older than me, because he's just kind of like a nice British dude. Like he's, he's, he's debonair, he's cool, he's suave, he's, I should stop, I should stop saying these nice things and just let you listen to the interview, right? Okay. Uh, as always, guys, hit me up on Twitter, Joshua Horowitz is my Twitter handle, and go over to wolfpop.com, check out all the amazing podcasts waiting for you there. It's free. What the hell else do you have to do? Come on, people. And in the meanwhile, enjoy Mr. Colin Firth. How long do we have? Uh, I think we have a bit. Uh, um, we can get started whenever you want. It's super casual. There's well, no that's formal fine. introduction. I don't know. It's, uh, it, it, all right. I'm trying. I have half an hour's worth to say about the movie. I love the movie. I, that day I can tell <laughs> that's you a good thing, right? That yeah. we have a, a good movie to talk about. Um, it's, but it's almost like talking about it. I mean, we can talk about that actually. But it's almost like when you start to deconstruct a joke. Yeah. Then, then suddenly, wait. How, you know, the, the joke stopped being funny for a very long right. time. Let's let's just talk through every action sequence <laughs> and explain why it's so entertaining. Yeah. No, the process was interesting. Um, shockingly so for me. I mean, it's it's. We were talking before when you walked in. You you mentioned Woody, which was the last time I saw you for Magic in the Moonlight, and it's um, 
you've like hit my sweet spot in the last year of your films doing a Woody Allen movie and doing just like a I mean this is just pure awesome entertainment that yeah. Matthew Vaughn yeah. uh, clearly relishes um, you know that there's pedestrian action adventure and then there's Matthew Vaughn I know who, well I mean the things he's aiming at are attempted over and over again by film after film yeah and it's funny, I've seen a few other the blockbusters, you know, that my kids watch and stuff, and it, it really does seem pedestrian. Yeah. You know, even with attempts at humor and all the rest of it, it's, it's partly because of a dependency on editing. Right, which Matthew is minimizing. Well, there's the, obviously there's yeah. the obviously the showpiece sequence, which isn't going to give anything away, but there's well, that's that single camera continuous. Exactly. And so you know, the, the, and to see that that that's just an energy you get from human choreography that you don't get. Right. When you're dependent on an editor. Right. It doesn't matter how skillfully it's done. And even the, the intercuts fight sequences, uh, he still keeps them longer than most movies would. So you get three, four moves of a, seeing bodies really doing the thing. Right. And it tells the story of the fight rather than those think what just happened fights exactly which which sadly is is the that that cutty kind of thing has which some people do to great effect and it it can create a art form in and of itself but this one is is a little bit more rewarding i would think um were you a connoisseur at all of of action i did a bit of a crash course and caught up on i mean some of them are absolutely brilliant i hadn't seen the Bourne films so i saw all of those and uh I can. I just. I mean. I adored them. I thought if we can be half as as good as this stuff, but that it's a very very different tone. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a there's a recurring thing with espionage drama, which is the solitude of the main guy. It's it it's through. It overlaps with the detective genre, if you like. Going back to Sherlock Holmes, you know, who's a he's a mystery figure in many ways. We don't we I don't we don't know a huge amount about his right. life or. Um, you know, the, it hints at a dark side to him. Um, and then all the way through the, the gunmachoo things, the, the, the Raymond Chandler, sure. the, the, and everything you see in the noir films, there's this solitary figure lighting a cigarette under a lamppost. And, and then with the, the very serious end of the, the spy genre, if you like, which is, I suppose, the Graham Greene John Le Carre. Yep. Um, where you're dealing with real human issues I mean that that it, it's deep stuff and yeah. um, I think perhaps my favorite spy movie of all time is The Third Man you know and uh, I think that kind of set a tone for things that came later that either livened up the action or the humor or, or whatever it somehow has its roots in that sort of thing does a we have to pay service to Mr. Michael Caine himself, too, Harry Lyme. I mean, my, my dad exposed me to those Harry films. Harry Palmer? Harry Palmer, yes. thank you. Harry Lyme, thinking Third Man Third again. Man, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, like not only playing opposite Michael Caine, but basically wearing his Harry Palmer glasses. We talked scene. about it. I think I, I, Michael uh, lost no time in laying claim to those glasses. <laughs> you know, when he saw our glasses, these are the same glasses. And, um, and uh, it, it's, uh, it was, he, he was right. And he was actually quite interesting about that because I think there was a, there were a, the trappings of that film, the first Dipcrest file, uh, the first Harry Palmer film. It was um, it, it was called into question. I mean, glasses in the '60s were, you know, they, they, they're a fashion accessory now. Right. They weren't really back then, and uh, you know, you you were a square. And and uh, Michael said that the studio weren't happy with the glasses. They said, he cooks and he wears glasses? He said, 
this is not a heterosexual (laughs) action hero, you know. And that was how they read it at the time. And, of course, you know, you look at it now and, you know, it's something people want to adopt. Yeah. And... um, Anyway, it, it, I think the Bond reference in our film is, is a very, very obvious one and a very deliberate one, but I think it owes just as much to, to the Harry Palmer films, sure. to the Avengers, um, and also there's a long tradition of, uh, of spoofs. Right. You know, which this isn't quite. It doesn't go as far as... This. The Austin Powers thing, which is obviously the extreme. The Flint yeah, films, yeah, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. the James Coburn and the Austin Powers right. thing, which is, a, which is obviously whose dial is set firmly at comedy yeah um this is uh this is occupies a much more in well interesting it's a, but it's a it's a it's a an interesting little fine line it's drawing yeah. between homage and uh and satire well yeah what i love about it and i'm talking to matthew later this week is like it feels like the bond films which i i adore i mean I'm, i grew up with them we all did i'm sure um but there are constraints within that, and and you know, like that the, the people that hold that that franchise that literally control that franchise have constraints that they put on it, and it feels like Matthew was basically able to do a Bond movie and just be like, okay, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, this is how I can push it in areas where. Well, he's taken his love for Bond films, uh, uh, you know, having grown up with them. I mean, I think Bond, cinematic Bond, is my age. I think we were pretty well born the same year. Doctor right. No, is it? What about nineteen sixty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I've grown up with it and uh, it evolves and it obviously has survived several reincarnations uh, literally with the casting and it has echoed the preferences and the taste of the times and it I I love where it's going now I mean I don't think that this is a a hostile reaction to where it's going I think this is room for both well (laughs) the fact is it's gone so squarely in a particular direction it's left a lot of space for the alternative route, and um, I think I, I actually I think although these the, the recent bonds are more rooted in reality, they're darker. There's a I find that there's a kind of theme now where our superheroes have issues. Right, we get a glimpse at their issues. They have unhappy childhoods. They they. Um, have some sort of inner rage. A lot of daddy issues. Socially isolated. <laughs> yeah, it's, and we 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 get a window into that. Yeah, you know. But I and I think that must be because that's when we are even our, um, you know, even even our entertainment at its most purely entertaining is probably articulating something about where what we're, we're looking at. for. Yeah. yeah, and where we're at. Um. And so I think there must be a need for that. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that there's uh, Matthew has tapped into a yearning that he had, but I think he's found out that a lot of us have now, judging by the reactions to this film, yeah. for the campy, implausible, you know, gadget-strewn, uh, crazy uh, stuff with a you know a Roger Moore raised eyebrow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you. I mean, you mentioned Bond, and I know you've been asked about this before, and you've talked about it for probably almost decades now but was there ever anything to james bond did they ever did you go through a screen test yeah anything no i did have a meeting a long time ago which was uh, i barely remember it because it 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 just it's one of those meetings where you just know is a formality and it's clearly not going anywhere and i think it was probably around the time they were looking it was about the time dalton did it wow okay um so i 
I can't remember how old I would have been then. I might have been a little young. I, um, I, I, nobody, well, I was not taken seriously for the role at well, any point. No. D- did you take that meeting seriously? I mean, that's got to be for someone... No, I didn't. Really? Well, I mean, I, if, if I had thought that there was any sign that they were taking me seriously, I'd have been quite excited. Right. I... Um, I think would you accept Bond if it were offered is something you can't answer unless it happens. Yeah. Because it's it would become your life. It's a complicated question. It's it not is. so e- as easy as one would think. I think it, it it delivers a huge amount if for you if you're a popular Bond. And uh, I think there's a huge amount to be envied. I love the films. Yeah. I don't think I think Daniel Craig's as good as they've ever been. Um, but I think you must have to give up a lot. And it kind of, I mean, even someone like like Connery, you look at his career, it kind of took him, it feels like it took him a while to carve out another path in addition to Bond. He, yes, I think he, he, and he succeeded in winning people back over. Yeah. Uh, But you're right. I think you're going to carry something with you. Um, I actually think Brosnan's doing an amazing job of it as well. Yeah. Uh, I think that the work he's doing is so thoughtful and imaginative and with such a sense of irony. Right. That uh, I think that's pretty triumphant and Daniel Craig established himself um, as a brilliant and very versatile actor before this came along absolutely um, so you know I, I don't know if if it had come my way then what I could whether I could have said that <laughs> so you know it's a it, it, but it, it just didn't happen and now I think this will do very nicely yeah this works just fine right um, uh, since we have, have a little time I want to go back a little bit with you I mean just, I'm curious just growing up like who who do you consider your contemporaries? Did you were there people that you came along with that you felt were on the same path as you? That you know. Well, the paths all proved to be very different, but the people who were coming out of drama school or arriving in the you know at the same time were the likes of Kenneth Branagh, uh, Rupert Everett was a little ahead of me, Daniel Day Lewis was a little ahead of me. Um, in fact, the play my first job was a play called Another Country which was the vehicle which launched Rupert Everett and Kenneth Branagh and Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, so we all came through the same right. theatrical piece. And um, I'm trying to think, oh, Gary Oldman? It's um, not a bad group. No, it's, a, it's an extraordinary group. And I mean, it, it's interesting in looking at that. And, I mean, I would think, you know, growing up with that caliber of actor and some of which kind of hit earlier than others mm. right some of them had the opportunity and it and it clicked and Daniel Day-Lewis obviously my left foot that's pretty early on mm. um, is there is there a sense from your end of when is my time coming is there an anxiousness about that well it, it looks as if there should have been um, when you look back over it because those some of those guys became film stars um, early yeah and uh, most people would wonder what I was doing during that time. Uh, Hugh Grant was another one, by the way. You know, and but I kept because I didn't have high expectations. I thought I was probably going to be off doing repertory theatre or experimental theatre or something. You know, when I was a drama student, I, I was not um, innocent about the odds that we faced, right? Because they're terrible, and I was not the most talented person in my year at drama school, and a lot of them have never worked. And that's basically how how it works, you know. That's the, those that those are the numbers. Yeah. Um, and so, getting a starring role in a West End play, I, even though I was the third person to take over in the role, right? And you know, I was largely playing to the last remaining tourists who hadn't seen the play. 
still felt meteoric to me. Sure. And then I got a movie. I, we did the movie of that play. And to be in a movie, uh, to be employed, to be a member of Equity, to have an agent uh, was so far beyond my expectations. And it took anyone else that I was at drama school with, if they ever got any of those things, it took a long time. Yeah. I, so I was just reeling from my good fortune. And I was probably... That was in my mind far too much to be thinking, why aren't I an even bigger deal? Was Hollywood movie making, was like classical kind of, when we think of Hollywood films, something you grew up with, something you aspired to, something you ever thought I will get to? Or was it just sort of apples and oranges from what you were doing in the theater and the kinds of television work you were doing for a while? Oh, well, again, I thought it was beyond, it was so beyond my... uh, my idea of my prospects that I didn't even contemplate it. I mean, I, of course, I, if someone had told me I'd end up doing films at all uh, or were ever to do a film that had an international audience, I, I, I would have, well, I would have been astonished. I mean, it, it, it just wasn't in my thinking. So I didn't get as far as aspiring to it. Yeah. I just would, hoped I'd get to do this job. And in some ways, that's never left me. And I, you hear other actors, actors older than I am, talking like this, um, about how this strange feeling that all you really want is employment. Yeah. You know, I'm, and as soon as the film finishes, you think, am I going to get another one? Sure. Um, it never quite goes away. So I, I think this isn't some sort of false humility. It's just pure actor's insecurity. Well, it's funny, and we mentioned Michael Caine early, early on. I mean, and in preparing for this and looking at the breadth of your work, it's not only the breadth; it's frankly also the quantity. You, you are a working actor. You, yeah, but if you can't get the quality, you know, no, I mean there are qualities there too. But I mean, and and that's something that's often associated with Michael Caine as well. Is he 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 clearly enjoys working, and he yeah. just he cranks out three or four movies it seems a year and frankly you do too I mean it's it's actually remarkable like is that something just again a work ethic you think that came from parents from growing up from never feeling secure enough to know that like okay I've got my place situated I need to keep hustling I mean it's actually none of those things I don't think I don't think it's much of a work I think my first instinct is a is a is a sedentary and lazy <laughs> one so I no I just actually like it. I mean, I like. <laughs> There's that. It didn't even occur to me. Wait, you actually like what you do? <laughs> I like doing it, and I, it, it feels in because it's a it's a rather strange. There's some strange and and, not, and unnatural aspects to this business. Yeah. Um, you know, the promotional side of it can yeah. be strange, and 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 you're in a. It's just not the same as everyday life. Of course, it's, you know, you're in a rarefied environment where. Um, you're having to give some version of yourself to the world. Right. And uh, to, the film set or the theatre rehearsal is a wonderfully sobering and refreshing practical place to be. Right. Where you're just back to doing what you set out to do. The reason you went to drama school, the reason you did school plays, is just because you like it. You like the collaboration, you like telling stories, you like trying to nail a role. Even the research that goes with it, it, that's, you know, having never been to university, that scratches that itch. I'm I'm reading stuff, I'm finding out about things, I'm even dipping my toe in learning skills that I never would have... That's the thrill of it. And um, so... 
there's you, there's an eagerness to get back to that place. Yeah. It, it feels like my natural habitat. And so it's not about building something or climbing a ladder or trying to establish anything. It's just, that instinct is, does not have my eye on the external world at all, really. Right. It's just getting back to where you're actually happy. and <laughs> Yeah, it's just doing the day job. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just love it. And actually, funnily enough, because uh, films are, you know, there's something conspicuous, I can take a year off and no one will notice. Um, in fact, I once said to a journalist, I'm thinking of doing that. And it became a bit of a, um, a news item, you know. <laughs> Is he going to take time? Is he going to take a sabbatical? And I, I thought, actually... You guys will never know. You won't know. And I think I'd already done it and no one did know. Oh, I, I mean, until, I, last year I hardly worked. Between the end of Kingsman and, and the end of last year, I've hardly done anything. Right. And if all it takes is for some of the old stuff to come out two in a row and everyone thinks you're busy. Right. <laughs> Hey guys, time for a quick break to tell you that this week's episode of Happy Sad Confused is brought to you by our friends at Squarespace. Squarespace has some very exciting news. They have partnered with the dude, Mr. Jeff Bridges, for Squarespace's Super Bowl ad. You guys probably saw it. Well, it's no stunt. Jeff has actually created DreamingWithJeff.com with friends old and new using Squarespace. It's an album of relaxing sounds, guided meditations, and stories, and you can visit it at dreamingwithjeff.com to listen for free or pay what you want to download. On top of that, all proceeds go to the charity group No Kid Hungry. So if that inspires you, perhaps it's a good time to go to squarespace.com and start building your own website. You can do it with a free trial, no credit cards required. It's easy to use and customize and it'll look beautiful on any device thanks to their great templates. You can use it for your portfolio, your personal site, or even if you have a store, since each site comes with a free commerce option. And if you ever need help, they are there for you 24-7. So go to squarespace.com, build a website, enter offer code HAPPY at checkout, get 10% off, and show your support for our little show. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. Now back to the show. Was, um... Uh, you know, obviously, you look at anyone's career and you see some things that seem like turning points, and clearly, um, Darcy in both forms will follow you throughout forever in your life. Um, was Pride and Prejudice something that felt like it it it, it marked a, a, a turning point for you? That it felt like things changed? No, I was very slow to get it. I mean, I, I think I'm only just beginning to get the message <laughs> now. <laughs> that must have had a big impact because I don't. One of the joys of of being uh, in work. And maybe this, on some subconscious level, is what drives me to keep going back to the film set, is that I'm in a new place and it protects me from the old place. Right. And so by the time people are saying whether they like or don't like the last one... You're three projects past it already. It doesn't, yeah, <laughs> it, and it, it, it protects you. It doesn't matter if they, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you feel it less because you're always engaged with what's next right. and you always have your hopes there and so you can shrug it off. Um, it also means it's not as easy to own the success of something that people love. Right. But I think that's a, probably a fair trade-off, and it, it, it's probably all a leveling thing. When uh, when the Darcy uh, job happened, I I was um, I, uh, the first thing that surprised me because I thought I'd arrived three or four times. You know, the one the, the one we just talked about earlier about kind of leaving drama school. Sure. I thought that was that's it. Look, yeah. I made it. Made, and then I think, you know, when that happened, I, and 
people were announcing me as this new arrival. I was thinking, well, I've, I've, I've been here. Um, and, uh, and then I suppose with Bridget it sort of happened again because that was right. the film. So I, I, I've kept arriving. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I suppose it amounts to a slow burn. I didn't, I mean, all that was, all they've all been is an engagement, I've shown up for work, <laughs> done it, gone home at the end of the day, and leave it to be other people's business what they make of it, really. It must be just such a strange thing, because as you all know, like you encounter people probably daily who you approach it from such like a, you know, a practical standpoint, because you are, you've done probably a hundred different projects in your mm. career and it's one of a hundred mm. and for some it's like they're they see you and they're they're in that moment and they're breathing of that course, yeah. that 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 really touched them and that's a beautiful thing yeah. but to engage with them on that level that's a complicated <laughs> well it's impossible uh, i mean it, 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 there is a this there is a straight there's a sort of paradox here obviously because uh, what you're doing is intimate by nature by by aspiration that's what you're striving for to connect with people too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you want the lens to read. If you've found something that is as honest as you can make it, as connected with the other actor, as, uh, as uh, you know, you try, to, you try to be as daring as possible, you try to be as rigorous with yourself as possible, and it's, a, it's why I do it. It's what we're all striving for. Right. And so if you find a moment like that and it works and the camera was rolling at the time uh, it's an immense feeling of satisfaction and of course it's supposed to be communicating so there, there has to be somebody on the other end otherwise right. we our job is irre irrelevant right you are there have to be people there has to be an audience you are trying to do you're trying to reach them and you're trying to tell them a story which hopefully chimes with something that is their story too yeah. um, but it you cannot the, you have to go off duty and you cannot own that intimacy with you know a huge multitude of people who are responding to it you can be grateful that they've responded and immensely and i truly am i mean i'm the reason i'm still here at the age of 54 talking about my work is because enough people have responded to enough of it over some right. at some point um so in the end, they are what it's all about. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, that's me on duty, and uh, you'd, you'd go crazy if you can't go off duty. Everyone, anyone would. Do you, do you feel like you've come to some kind of strange reconciliation with, with the Bridget Jones films in a way? Because uh, you know, obviously that first film was huge. The second film, I think, maybe not as, as artistically rewarding. I don't want to put words in your mouth. And this third one that's been around in the ether for mm. a decade, and I know you and Hugh, I'm talking to Hugh actually tomorrow, um, and I know you guys have are asked about it every single day, and mm. I, it sounds like you guys have kind of gone through different ideas of like whether it's the right thing, the wrong thing. Yeah. Have you come around to a different place? I don't know. I, I haven't spoken to Hugh for quite a while, and uh, I, I know we're both cautious about it. He yeah. far more than I. Right. Um, so I think you'll probably you, you get, you'll get a – well, I'd be curious to hear what he says <laughs> tomorrow. Um, I think there's a very strong case for leaving it alone. Yeah. And uh, it's been a long time now. It's, it's possible that she belongs to a particular decade. Um, I think that the film made enough of an impact to have been um, – Imitated, and uh, I think that in some ways can risk leaving behind the original. Yeah. Uh, so, but on the other hand, 
it has to evolve. Uh, if you're going to do it, it has to be an evolved version of it. Yeah. And I've always been intrigued, and I said this back at the time, that the most likely, the most fertile time to, to, to ever think about it is rather than trying to drag out some version of the first one into a sequel, is to come back almost in a Richard Linklater form, mm. <laughs> you know, to come <laughs> yeah, back yeah. and say, look, what happened 10 years, 15 years later? Yeah, yeah. What do they look like now? What, what are their issues now? It, it can't be about, does he fancy me? Am I fat? Am I thin? Right. Is it, it, you know, what about parenthood or not being a parent? And to actually do it, have an updated version of it for an entire, same people in a new generation, if you can find material in that, then I think there's, you could turn it from a, a rather dangerous and tawdry idea of, sure. of, of exploiting something and actually have some fun with the idea of seeing people years ahead, years on. We're knee-deep as we, as we sit here today in that crazy sort of award season, which you navigated, you've navigated a few times and, and clearly uh, got a few accolades, to say the least, uh, King's Speech uh, winning you the Oscar. Um, do you... I'm curious, like, what your memories of that night and whether you had steeled yourself for the, the slim possibility that you weren't going to win. It seemed like at that point that you were the, based on the precursors, you were going to win that night. Were you ready in case you, did, you didn't to do anything yeah, that far? I, I didn't know how ready I was for either scenario. Uh, but, yes, I definitely was allowing for the possibility. I, I know all about upsets. Did you feel like you were able to enjoy that moment, or does it feel like you're on autopilot at that point? It, sort of autopilot isn't quite the right word because it's so intensified. Yeah. And you're at the end of a very long season at that yeah. time. <laughs> I, it's not... The, the, when it comes from nowhere, which I think is rare for anybody, it, it'll feel different. The, when I... When Single Man was first screened at the Venice Film Festival. That was an unbelievably unexpected and extraordinary moment because no one had, not only had no one campaigned, no, there had been no press, there, no one had even seen it. Right. Well, it was a filmmaker that wasn't a filmmaker. It was a guy that yeah. just... Was, Nobody had any... There was no buzz one way or the other. Yeah, it was it's just, just Tom Ford has made a film and the first people going to see it are at the Venice Film Festival, yeah. apart from about 12 people. You know, he'd shown it to some of his friends and I think his agent, but no, there'd been no focus groups, there'd been no distributors, there'd been no, um, there was no publicist attached. Right. It was um, completely for sale. And it closed the Venice Film Festival and it closed beautifully. And coming away with an award from that was a bit of a Cinderella moment. Right. And I remember thinking at the time, I don't know if it can ever be quite this good again, because even if things go forward with this or anything in the future, there'll be... It, it won't be as... Uh, it just won't have the purity. Yeah. You know, you would... It's... Uh, well, there's something... Sadly, and maybe sad is too strong a word, but there's something very orchestrated for about the season we're in now, because there's so many... It's, it's on well, a schedule. Be, yes, there's it's, a political dimension to yeah. it, and obviously. And uh, I'm not going to. I don't want this to come across as if I'm dissing the whole thing, no, because sure. I think there's an awful lot of joy in it, and I think it draws attention to the industry. And but I also think it is has it, it can make you very neurotic. Yeah. I mean, even if you're one of the few people in my business that isn't naturally neurotic, somebody's neurosis is contagious. So of there's going to be. Somebody else's um, insecurity about, you know, with the, 
this is all going to go away if we don't do A, B, and C, um, can affect everyone. And because you're not on your own with the whole thing. You know, other people have things at stake as well. And, I, you know, we can all get through that. It's all fine. I think as long as people don't succumb to the danger of forgetting why they made the movie. Right. You know, thinking it finishes on February whatever. It doesn't. And, and uh, that's, it's, you know, if you've made a really good piece of work, it probably wasn't whatever people think right. with awards in mind. Right. So that's not what you set out to do. It's not what you thought you were doing. And it's also that connection we were talking about earlier that you're striving for. That's the real story. And I know this all sounds a bit earnest and lofty. And uh, also awards, you know, for every good moment you might have if you're one of the lucky ones, there's so many bad moments people are having during that time. You know, so it can be a cruel business. Do you, do you, are you the type of actor that we would talk about how much joy you just simply derive from doing the work, but what about being in situations that are not necessarily comfortable or necessarily in your zone? I mean, I think of things like Mamma Mia, where you have to sing. I think of things where, I think of things, a mocap where you did for, what, a Christmas carol yeah. and, and putting those crazy suits on. Well, those are all actually part of the adventure of it, being out of your natural zone. I made no secret of my singing limitations when I went to meet them, and they were not dissuaded. <laughs> that wasn't the deal-breaker. And so it's funny, you know, when I, when I went in to, to record the tracks, because it wasn't... Uh, I don't think it was recorded live. We did record it live. I don't know what they used um, right. in, in the one sort of solo bit I had. But we went in to do the pre-record. And I met, that's where I first met um, Pierce Brosnan and Stellan Skarsgård. Mm-hmm. And I stared into, to look into their eyes was looking into spirals of fear. <laughs> A deep abyss of terror. I, it's, Nothing it's can fight in James Bond, but no, no, the prospect of singing. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things like public speaking. There are guys that could probably face machine gun fire that yeah. don't want to get up on a podium. And uh, this is how we felt. I don't know what it is about singing. It's very exposing. I love singing. I'll do it in the shower and all over the place. You know, it's uh, no one's edification but my own. But to face a microphone and have to try to hold this particular tune, none of us had those skills. And Well, yeah. also on a set, are you singing with background or are you just singing a cappella? Because that, that, uh, that would feel like dead, I think, a dead kind of weird moment to just I'm sort of... I'm trying to remember how we did it. I didn't have the burden of singing. You know, I had one song, and my blushes were somewhat spared, at least to me, by the fact that I was sitting with a guitar as if I was a guy who decided to sing a song. I didn't have to interrupt a conversation right. by breaking into song. Right. So it, it had the convention of, okay, here's my Think guitar. A little naturalistic yes. in a way. So yes. I was in that, yeah. yeah. Um, so that, I had a bit of a break in that respect. Um, and I think we were sitting on a boat, and I think it, I must have had an earpiece in. For the for the background, so it's so traumatizing. You've blocked it out. You've uh... <laughs> yes, yeah. there was a traumatic element to it, but there is you know it, we're facing that all the time. You yeah. wonder, you constantly wonder why we do it. I mean, people do theatre even though they're in shreds with stage fright. Um, people are terrified of whether it's forgetting lines or being humiliated on the stage or doing what you can't do. But I mean, I you know with acting you. From day one of drama school, 
um, your comfort zones being threatened. Yeah. And, of course, once you get into the business, it's a business which will try to find a comfort zone for you and keep you there. Yeah. You know. It's funny. I think, I think we all, maybe not all of us, but many of us are, are attracted to those kind of challenges that we, all, we feed off the accomplishment in a way, like uh, of getting over that hurdle. For, for myself, like, I have to do some, a lot of live stuff, uh, you know, live stuff on air, and I'm petrified before it. And yet it's the thing I enjoy most in a weird way. Well, I think this, that's part of the narcotic of adrenaline yeah. is that um, there is nothing more exhilarating. I've watched this. My kids go through this when they're frightened of something that actually the, the thrill of fear and then not letting the fear stop you doing it. And then if you can triumph after that, there is no greater feeling in the world. Yeah. You, know, um, you don't always triumph. The, um, speaking of, of adrenaline, bringing it back to Kingsman, you must get a kick out of just seeing yourself in these contexts and to see that you sold it. Because you know, there's one thing on paper to say, can Colin Firth be an action hero and take out 89 guys in a church? But to actually see you do it and to do it so awesomely, <laughs> it's got to be a buzz. Yes. Uh, well, the audience reaction is a buzz. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I've seen a crowd react like um, Funnily enough, Mamma Mia is the only other time I think I've ever <laughs> been in a theater where people have been so vocal. Right. Here it's clearly very, very different in, in nature, but it's, this gets rounds of applause in the middle of the movie. And to be a part of that is, is a hell of a buzz. All I could see initially was how... Better, how, I, I, I know how much better the stunt guys can do this than I can. And that's really all I could see because, you know, they were teaching me. These guys can do this stuff every day. Yeah. They're all world-class martial arts experts and stunt men. And, and when they displayed the choreography, it was, it was a magnificent bit of athleticism. Yeah. And I have no athletic history whatsoever. I mean, there was a guy who... Uh, Damien Walters, he's got something like 25 million YouTube hits on his display. He's a gold medal winning gymnast. He will somersault through car windows and out again and, you know, on the tops of skyscrapers. And he was, you know, teaching me to do one somersault. Right. And that's how it started. And so I just felt so uh, inadequate and, and, uh, and implausible, which is why I was cast. I mean, that's the stunt that Matthew Vaughan wanted to pull. Right. It was the, the big surprise that the last guy in the world who right. was ever going to sort of kick ass is, is me. But he, for that reason, he wanted me to deliver it myself. And uh, so it was six months of training. And the first month was uh, intimidating and agonizing. But then it's, it started to come together. Yeah. And if you persist at anything, something will happen. Physically transforming. Um, actually, what they were... These guys challenged. It wasn't to... You know, if they, they, it would have been a failure if any of those guys had to step in for me. Right. So, you know, because they can just do that, they, their challenge was to teach this guy, this middle-aged man with no athletic history, to do, to approximate what they can do. And for them to get me on camera as much as they did was, was a triumph. Um, but when I first saw it back, I thought, I don't look as good as Rick. I don't look as good as Ruda. You know, these guys look so balanced and, and you know, right. and... Uh, well, you've been doing it for six months. You should do it as well as the guys that have been doing it for 40 years. Clearly. No, exactly. <laughs> and fortunately, I have to remember that you guys haven't seen Rick and Ruda. Exactly. Doing it, so. <laughs> He's uh, good. He's no Rick, though, guys. Yeah. Come on, quite. <laughs> Does, um... 
I mean, it's interesting in, in looking at your career, and this is a potential kind of a franchise film, clearly, and I, I hope we see more adventures of, of this crazy universe Matthew's created, but you really haven't been part of, like, any franchises all. I can think of. No, I suppose Bridget's the closest yeah. I got, and we're still talking 15 years later about whether a third one is, is feasible. Was that conscious? Is it just sort no. of happenstance? Oh, or? no, I'd love to have that. You know, I, people who, who have a good franchise... I mean, I mean, good films to sure. keep going back to do that people want to see are in a very enviable position. It's, um, it, it, you know, there's always the conflict about, you know, your art, your craft versus, uh, you know, your, your mortgage. Art and yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, so if... I remember Jeffrey Rush after the King's Speech, you know, going off to do uh, a long... Or, or well, yeah, well, you go off to do a long stint in the theatre knowing he's got oh, okay. another Pirates coming yes, up. Yes, exactly. Um, it's a great thing to have, yeah. um, particularly as, you know, because Pirates is a lot of fun. And yeah. um, so it's not uh, conscious. I have not, again, I've not been invited. So you're, you're waiting for the call from Marvel, basically. Marvel, let them, uh, let's let Marvel them know. or Marv, in fact, which is Matthew's company. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. you know, if, Quite if, prolific. If, we can, um, if I can find my way back into Vaughan World, I'd, I'd certainly love to do that. Yeah. yeah. What's, uh, what's coming up next for you? Have you shot anything? Or? I've shot, the one thing I shot just before Christmas was a film called Genius, which is about, uh, it's John Logan's script about Maxwell Perkins and right. um, Thomas Wolfe. An amazing uh, cast in that one, too. As I it's Jude Law yeah. as, uh, as Thomas Wolfe, um, Nicole Kidman. Uh, you worked with now. Who's now, yeah, one of my great recurring fellow travelers. Like three in the last couple of years, Well, Nicole right? and Mark Strong, I, I think, are two of my most... <laughs> and Rupert Everett, I think, are my highest... Um, Not bad. Not uh, bad company. Count, partnership count. Um, yeah. I've, unfortunately, I barely work with Nicole in Genius. We have done two scenes, I think. Yeah, uh, Michael Grandage um, did his first. It was his first film. Um, you know, having um, done such amazing theatre work over the years, this, sure. this is his first outing into cinema. Uh, Laurie Linney, Linney um, who's another old friend, and a great cast, beautiful story. Nice. Uh, but you know, the two different kinds of creativity: it was the, the the editor and the somewhat out of control artist. Um, is that where your head's at now? Are you done with that? Or are you just, My head is somewhat thing? in it, um, actually. Having said I like to shake them off and don't dwell on the old stuff, a few, a few of them will linger, and that definitely has. Yeah. I sometimes find myself still researching after it's over. Um, and that one did get under my skin. I think it's an, an extraordinary story. Um, I, I know you have to run for you have a, a, ton, a film of this type. You have to do a ton of press. I forgot to mention that if you look to your right, you'll see on the board... Colin Firth at the bottom of the board. The Is a Genius is not something I wrote. It's something that Ethan Hawke, previous guest of, uh, of my that? podcast, he saw that you were on the board, and he he went on and on. You should know. This is not me flattering you. I would never do such a thing. But Ethan um, wanted me to tell you how he thought you'd nail Magic in the Moonlight and and uh, and uh, how, you know, there have been a lot of different interpretations of that kind of Woody Allen protagonist and that he thought that you, your interpretation of it... Uh, well, I'm glad you can't see me blushing on the radio. <laughs> I'm absolutely overwhelmed by that. That's because I think he's a genius too. So uh, it's... Um, and in fact, I told him that. I, we met briefly at the Globes, so... Uh, there you go, the Mutual yeah, Admiration Society. Yeah, and I, I just mentioned Linklater in the, earlier on. Exactly. So I'm, I'm, Clearly been tracking him. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you, Ethan. Um, it, it's good to see you, Colin. Congratulations on this one. It's always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you. Thank you. 
That's the show, guys. I'm Josh Horowitz. This has been Happy, Sad, Confused. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Hit me up on Twitter, Joshua Horowitz. Go over to wolfpop.com. Check out all the amazing shows over there. And most importantly, check back in next week for another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.